Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Good morning. I am Janice Leibovitz live on this very, very chilly Joburg morning. You are, as always, my People of the Book, and it is a great honour to have as my guest this morning, Nakama Brody. Hi, Nakama. Hello, how are you? I am great, thanks. <laughs> how are you? <laughs> Keeping warm, a little I bit, hope. Yeah, a little, a little bit cold, but, uh, but otherwise. Bit, yeah, more than a little bit cold this morning. It, yeah, that came as a bit of a shock, didn't it? Um, all of I a sudden. I waiting for those kind of Eastern European ancestor genes to kick in, but honestly, um, sorry, the Ashkenazi genes did not work here. I've obviously got yeah. some. Latent Mediterranean desires there. Yeah, and and I must say, I, I hate to admit it, but my age is definitely showing. And with each winter, I just I, I just cannot tolerate it. I get worse and worse with age, I have to admit. So without further ado, we are going to actually go straight to an ad break so that we can get into the chat after that. So we're going to take a break now. And then Nahama and I are going to be chatting straight after that. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I'm back with you. I'm Janice Liebowitz. And before the break, I introduced my guest, Nahama Brody. Hi, Nahama. We're back on air. And by way of, well, I will attempt a brief introduction because... <laughs> Nechama's CV is certainly long, detailed, and, you know, pretty illustrious, to be very honest. But let's keep it as brief as possible. Nechama, you're an editor, publisher, journalist, musician, second Dan karate, so we won't mess with you, and also a fact-checker. And I know that that fact-checking and research is is very close to your heart and something that that we we're going to discuss it later in in our chat when it relates to to your fiction and we're going to discuss fiction as opposed to non-fiction but we're going to also be chatting about your latest book we'll, we'll discuss your previous book as well because this is um a sequel well a follow-up to your previous book your current book that was recently released is called three bodies and it follows up to your previous novel, Knucklebone. And while you were writing Three Bodies, you were also researching your your PhD. Am I correct? Yes. 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 And your PhD in journalism. Tell us about the topic of your PhD. Um, so my PhD research looked at how the media covers femicide in South Africa, or at least it looked at femicide in South Africa using media as a resource. So I took, um, uh, I built up a large data set of media coverage of uh, um, female homicides um, for one crime year in South Africa. And I looked at how the media covered that. And then I also integrated that with other crime data. So I've worked in crime research for quite a long time. And this integrated, I suppose, my two areas of interest, which was looking at crime and violence and understanding the media and trying to understand could the media teach us more about femicide in South Africa? And also if we studied media coverage of femicide, what would that tell us 
about how we understood femicide as a social problem in this country. And you integrated that topic quite neatly into three bodies as well. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, I've probably spent the best part of the last 10 years working with data on femicide. So it's impossible not to have that seep into, unfortunately, my worldview. So I've become quite a lot more cynical, I think. Um, but also in terms of my understanding of the dynamics that uh, that lie behind many of the crimes that we see, including gender-based violence and the death of women. Absolutely, and that, that is um, a huge topic that we unfortunately are seeing raising its head a lot more in our news stories currently, locally and internationally, but obviously our focus is is local and the fact that we see it a lot and it is very close to home for us. Um, so to chat about, about three bodies, and I mean, I'm going to talk a lot about the 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 magical aspect of the book and because it's just something that interests me a lot. And I know that for some people it's quite difficult to, to relate to. I mean, we all have our, our different points of interest, our different points of reference. And I know that in Knucklebone there, there also was the magical aspect. I, I haven't had a chance to read Knucklebone yet. Um, hopefully over the weekend I will get hold of a copy and, and I'm definitely going to read that. And I know that the, the, the aspects of, of magic and, and the, the aspects were different between Knucklebone and Three Bodies. In Three Bodies, a lot of it related to water magic. And yeah. you mentioned yeah. something that called battle magic. Can you explain that? What is battle magic? Um, so just some some kind of context for this, which is um, I write fiction because I love fiction, um, and I particularly love detective stories and thrillers. So they are as much a part of the things that I've been involved in my whole life as doing academic research um, or data-based research into crime. And when I write thrillers in particular, for me it becomes a way of, I suppose, trying to pursue – justice that I don't always see happen in the real world. And, you know, so in a book, I can control what happens to the characters and I can make sure that the bad guys get their just desserts at the end of the book, Um, which unfortunately we don't see often enough in real life. And I don't really believe in kind of uh, mob justice as, as rewarding as it would feel to kind of take justice into my own physical hands and to go and sort of beat up a bad guy, that's not usually possible, and it's usually not a good idea. So, you know, books represent a way to manifest that kind of desire, but using frameworks that currently exist. And this started off with when I wrote Knucklebone, which came out uh, two years ago, but actually had a a much longer backstory, was I was – actually, the story for Knucklebone kind of appeared in my head. I was driving uh, in town – on that sort of giant concrete double-decker highway that goes past Joburg Central Police Station, used to be called John Foster Square. Yes. And I really had this strong um, story that appeared in my head of a man in Johannesburg, an ex-cop, who was trying to understand kind of these forces of good and evil that manifested in poaching, in animal poaching. So Knucklebone is very much about um, animal poaching in South Africa and the different crime cartels that are involved. 
And as part of that, though, it was looking at these animal parts as almost a magical resource. And when I say magical, um, I'm not talking about dragons and elves. I suppose right, it, relates, it relates a lot more to traditional belief systems, particularly in South Africa, where many people in our country do um, still believe in kind of traditional uh, belief systems that involve ancestors and what we might um, sometimes, unfortunately, dismissively refer to as magic. But from my perspective, doesn't really seem any more magical than somebody parting the sea, you know, or, um, or if you want to look at Christian tradition, turning wine, you know, water into wine or any of those yes. sorts of things. So um, the fact that it's not necessarily part of your own daily experience or my own daily experience doesn't mean it's not real for other people. And what I've tried to do with my books was to integrate these beliefs um, uh, into an everyday experience around crime where just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it's not true. And so that kind of laid a foundation for where I started with Knucklebone. And then continuing with Three Bodies was it started off again with kind of a, a small story that expanded into a bigger one. And years ago when I was consulting with the Sangoma in Maboneng, she was, she was living in Maboneng at the time, um, and she mentioned to me that there were mermaids living in, or trapped in the Hardebeersport Dam. And for me, the Hardebeersport Dam also represents so many interesting narratives that kind of coincide there, which is, you know, it's this man-made dam. It's uh, covered with invasive water weed. Um, it represents this extremely elite and expensive kind of golf estates on the one side. And then in the areas kind of further north and east of, of Hardebeersport Dam, obviously there's huge poverty. So it represents so many of the South African contrasts that we're exposed to every day. And three bodies started with this idea of this um, a body of a woman being found in the dam by a gardener at one of these golf estates. And yes. when I was consulting again with my Sangoma, and I said to her, I said, why would women or female uh, water spirits be trapped in the dam? What would they be used for? And she just looked at me bluntly and she said, battle magic. And battle magic means big, violent crimes, big weapons. And there in South Africa, you know, the, the, the biggest types of crimes we have like that are cash and transit heists, um, which are huge and which have been going on for quite a long period of time and involve kind of criminal coordination and weaponry and inside information at such a high level. Um, one of the research, one of the resources I used was Annalise Burgess's brilliant book, Heist, which documents, um, the, the heists and some of the court cases and all the things that go on behind them. And these really are battles. I mean, the, the cash and transit attacks are absolutely modern day battles and they take place with, you know, huge amounts of bullets, a complete disregard for life. And so these things, this then turned into the story that became the basis for, for three bodies. Okay, great. And hold that thought about the cash and transit house and we're going to get back to that after this break. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I'm back and I'm chatting to my guest, Nahama Brody, about her new book, Three Bodies. And before the break, we were chatting about battle magic, which led us to a discussion on cash and transit heists, which, which is a major feature in her book, Three Bodies. So Nahama, before the break, you were telling me about cash and transit heists and how those relate to battles. And as you said, these are huge battles. And in the book, these heists led you to underground tunnels at Park Station. 
which I found absolutely fascinating. Tell me about um, how you discovered these underground tunnels. Did you actually go and investigate these tunnels? Were you able to go and take a look there? Yeah, so the, the tunnels actually, um, I suppose I used them as part of the story because they were a very resonant place for me. I think I must have been there, it must be 10 years ago now because it was all that sort of, I can't believe it's 10 years since the World Cup. But um, about a decade ago, Gus Silber um, mentioned something to me about a story he'd heard and a website he'd seen somewhere where somebody had found their way into these disused tunnels underneath Park Station, and it looked really amazing. And it fact, does sound like something Gus would know about. <laughs> and and he, he was kind of too busy, but if I was interested, I should look into it because I was doing quite a lot of stuff on the inner city and on Joburg in general at the time. And um, I somehow, and the story is in fact still up on the Mail and Guardian website. If you go and Google my name and Park Station, you should find it. And that came out about, it was also about two years after I had published my first book, which was the history of the city of Joburg, the Joburg book. So I was interested in the history of Park Station and what was buried and how it connected to the present. And it took me weeks and weeks and weeks to get permission from Prasa and to find somebody who knew what I was talking about and then who knew how to actually get into the tunnels because you couldn't get into them from a normal door. That, that was my next question. I mean, how, how would you actually access these tunnels? I mean, how would you get down there? Who okay, would so you, you ask? Can't. You can't. It's, this isn't like a, a publicly accessible thing. Um, and so anybody who's of a certain age, and I'm not that old, but people may remember Park Station's main entrance used to be around the corner from where it is now. And if you've ever driven on, now I'm going to forget the street, it's not Rissick, it's the one on the corner, Von Villach or whatever it is, there's this amazing facade that has all these animal heads and stuff. And that was built at a time. So if you go and look at the article I did in the Mail and Guardian or go and read in the Joburg book, that was done at a time when um, Johannesburg was this kind of booming city. It was around the time or just before the Second World War massive population growth in the city and we built gradually this huge very grand railway station because at the time that was how you traveled okay yes, long distance yes, so course. rail travel was fancy and so they built this incredible station that had this huge vaulted entrance and you walked in and you went down like four stories and then there was this massive um like almost a courtyard area inside and it had all these panels done by Anton van Vaux and there was the blue room which was this kind of famous area and the tunnels that you can't actually access, you can't access this old station, by the way, it's locked up. It's there, but it's locked up and it's not in great condition. Um, or you can't easily access it. But you can't even get to the, t- the tunnels originally would have linked to this. And they were the tunnels that the passengers would have walked down to get to what was at that time the, the train platforms for Park Station. What happened was many years later when they changed from steam trains to electric and they raised the, the height of Park Station to where the train tracks are now, everything kind of got moved. And these tunnels and this blue room area just got blocked off successively. But it, they've never been filled in and they've never been demolished. So they're these funny empty spaces underneath and next to Park Station, which are – they're not haunted, but they're incredible. They are such a snapshot of a particular time. Now, the tunnels you can't access from the Blue Room. You have to go around another side door somewhere else on the side. Um, and this is why I had to spend months getting permission from the rail authority to go there and then also to find somebody who knew how to get into the tunnels and, you know, eventually got kind of taken down a little door by an old person who knew their way around. 
And there is this network of what used to be passenger tunnels and also offices buried underneath Park Station. And when you're there, there's no cell phone reception. There's almost no noise. There's water everywhere. There's um, it, It's a very strange space. And then in many of the tunnels, there are these um, old posters. So there's posters for the Rand Easter show or um, from like the 1950s. Okay, and they're these old paper posters that are just plastered up on these tiled walls, gradually peeling off. So it's this very funny trip kind of uh, down some nostalgia rabbit hole. Literally back in time. Literally 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 stepped back in time. But at the same time, those aren't the only tunnels. So those are the tunnels that I've been into, and they are. there's no electricity there. There's water. There's goodness knows whatever else there. But I know that from other stories that came out later, there are also other tunnels that were used to courier mail to and from and around Park Station to the post offices at that time. So there is literally a network of kind of a honeycomb network of tunnels underneath Johannesburg. And when you are looking at where would I want to hide stuff related to a crime, this is a great spot because nobody can get access to it. And, you know, it's it's well protected. So. I always try and weave in places that I know and that I've been in to, to, into, into kind of fictional books because I can also tell you what it feels like or what it smells like. What is it like to be stuck underground? Um, it's quite oppressive. So that was just introduced because uh, it worked in the story, but also because it was really a very um, atmospheric place to include. And it's not that far from Joburg Central, which is where one of the cent- the main characters in the book, uh, Reshma Patel, is, Reshma, is based. Yes. Yeah, initially, she's initially based there. And it also, um, it was a great a starting point for the way she felt about how she was how she was treated by the actual employee, this this old employee of of the station, who she lands up interacting with, who she tries to get help from, and his attitude towards her. And it's also where she she interacts with other members of the police force who I, I obviously don't want to give any spoilers or give anything away, but we see how she relates to other members of her, her team and who then become members of a new team that she works with. It's a very good indication Again, leading into another theme of your book and another theme of a lot of the research that you do, um, the police force and attitudes towards women in the police force. Um, Reshma is obviously a woman of color. She's not white. And women are always going to have to prove themselves in the police force. And Reshma always has that feeling of not being good enough not having done the right thing, even though she is obviously streets ahead of the men she's working with in in every single way. And whatever she does, she always is given this feeling that she has to just prove herself. And I know that this is a theme that you research, a theme that you work on. And is it always going to be this way? As, you know, it's quite tricky, and I was actually thinking about this in light of the current um, uh, protest action that's happening in America and sort of this worldwide um, very close scrutiny of the role that police forces play in not really the pursuit of justice but the um, persistence of oppression. And I was thinking to myself, how do Reshma and Ian Jack and their colleagues fit into this? Because – 
one of the things that I do strongly believe in is I, and maybe this is me still clinging on to some residual naivety is I like to believe that the majority of our police force in South Africa are in those jobs because they genuinely want to help people and they believe that the work that they do enables the pursuit of justice. Um, and justice is a strange thing. It's not black and white. It's often quite gray, even in our law books. And I, I think our laws here are quite good, generally, um, compared to other countries. Having said that, though, um, obviously there are exceptions. But when I've researched crime, I do come across a number of stories where exceptional police action from often very unremarkable characters, you know, people in a small town police force who just don't let go of a case, who pursue an investigation for many, many years um, in order to identify the perpetrator and make sure that the perpetrator is arrested, charged and prosecuted. And I want to believe that most police officers are those kinds of people or desire to be those kinds of people. Um, you know, it, it's a very poorly paid job. It's a very stressful job. It's a very high risk job. So there are not a lot of rewards for being a police officer. Um, being a female in the, in SAPS is also even trickier. It's an inherently patriarchal organization and has been for many years. There are multiple stories of um, intimate partner violence and gender-based violence committed by police officers against their female partners. So being a woman in the police force, not just in South Africa, but really anywhere, is always a challenge. And I do think, so when I was thinking about um, my ideas around policing relating to what people are looking at right now, is that if we had a police force that had more women in it, um, and that, that kind of looked for diversity of viewpoints and backgrounds, not, you know, not just sort of homogenous patriarchal norms. Those are the kinds of things that ultimately would uh, build a more responsible, um, police force that cared about its community instead of one that was based on violence. And I'm not saying that women can't be violent. You know, women can direct drive and, and effect violence. But what we do tend to find is that when women are more involved at more senior levels, and I don't mean reappear, I don't mean um, at management levels, because that can often not. In the police, in the case of the police, that often becomes a political manifestation rather than an actual management. One. Yes. But if we had a police force that had more women in it, would we, and a military too, would we see fewer deaths in police custody, for example? Um, you know, is this one of the ways that a police force could be transformed into something that serves the community and serves justice? So it's an ongoing struggle. But, yeah, it's a, it's important. You know, um, Reshma as a character believes very strongly that she is there to deliver justice, but she also wants to do it by the book. And sometimes doing things by the book presents a real challenge because it's not always possible to achieve justice when you stick to the rules. Yes, no, and, and she discovers that. Um, in sometimes in a very difficult way, um, and you know, she. It's, I'm I'm interested in in the relationship that you've created between Reshma and and Ian Jack, who is her partner, and yes. this interrelation interracial relationship that they have. Um, yeah, and is I there, is there a commentary really... on that? I mean, is there is there a commentary, a, a backstory behind that? As I say, I haven't read Knucklebone, but is there is there commentary yeah, so, that goes so... on behind that? I, th I think that you need to read Knucklebone. And what I should also say is that um, what we did before or during lockdown is if anybody wants to buy, you don't have to read Knucklebone before reading Three Bodies, but 
I would recommend it if you've got the time and the interest. And we also made sure that Knucklebone, the ebook on Knucklebone, which you can buy from Amazon or from Kobo, depending on what kind of e-reader you have, is that we discounted the price of Knucklebone, especially during ah. lockdown and, you know, with people stuck indoors. So if you're looking for a cold weather winter weekend read, um, it's, I think, under a hundred rand. Um, oh, wow. On, on Amazon or on Kobo. Um, so, so go and have a look there because it does really explain a lot of the background between Ian and Reshma. And I suppose I never really intended to develop them so much as a couple. I, I didn't write Knucklebone as a series. I wrote it as a, as one book. And then my agent at the time said, well, you know, do you have an idea for what comes afterwards? And I was like, yeah, sure. Of course. Um, but, What's and then thought, oh, I'd better think of what comes yeah, afterwards. Now, now I have to, now I have to deliver, which is a problem. Um, but it also looks at Ian's history. So when I first wrote Knucklebone, Ian was really the central character and Reshma was somebody who kind of crept in on the story and then became a stronger presence and a more important presence. Um, for probably those reasons that we've just discussed. But Ian himself is a white South African male who comes from kind of a, a fairly working class white background. So he doesn't come from the suburbs, uh, in north of Joburg. And his father was a police officer during the apartheid years. He's not Afrikaans. He's kind of of a, a Welsh sort of background. That's why his surname is Jack. And there was a, like I, I often include tiny little, I suppose my children would call them Easter eggs. But little pieces of trivia in the stories that I cover. So in Knucklebone, you'll see Ian is referred to as Cousin Jack quite a lot. And the reason for that comes from Joburg's history where when we started moving into deeper level underground mines, you had a lot of miners coming from Cornwall and Wales. Sorry, Cornish is Jack, not Welsh. You had miners coming from Cornwall and Wales who had experience in the coal mines. And particularly the Cornish miners um, – were very common and they were often, they were sort of stereotyped in a way that they were all related to each other. So, you know, it was your cousin Jack who came. Oh, right. And so, and so cousin Jack pretty much, uh, not just in South Africa, but in other countries is a, is a euphemism. It's a bit like in Joburg where we say, hey, my cousin, we understand yeah. that that kind of comes from a certain background. So cousin Jack, it has a similar thing, which is that there were a, a group of people and he comes from that kind of a background where his dad's nickname would have also been Cousin Jack. Because if you were from that type of white background, you were just a Cousin Jack. You were one of many. Um, and so Ian works in this environment where he has contact with one of his father's former police colleagues who's now left the force, um, a retired white Afrikaans background, police, a former police officer. And Ian has left the police force. He started off as a police officer, but he left it because the violence of policing um, doesn't sit right with his sense of justice. But he still wants to try and pursue justice and, to some extent, detecting um, and solving crimes. And he has to try and figure out how to do this outside of the police force. So him and Reshma are pursuing the same agenda, but in very different ways and confronting very different issues. So Reshma is constantly struggling with being taken seriously, proving that she's, you know, as good a shot as the men, that she's as sharp and as fast, and she can take the hard news as much as men. Whereas Ian is const uh, is constantly trying not to give in to his violence. He's trying to see the bigger picture. Um, he's trying to be open to social solutions and things like that. And he's constantly confronted, though, with the legacy of his own past, which is 
the violence that he knows surely his father must have committed as a police officer during the apartheid years and and all these kind of untold stories that often bubble up and surface and there's one of them and I don't want to give it away but there's a a big story that kind of comes through and surfaces in three bodies which again re- um actually re- relates back to real life stories um where people are kind of discovering the legacies of apartheid era assassinations and crimes but we only find out the truth many years later yes okay after the break and um, we're going to take a break in in a sec but after the break I want to touch briefly on the topic that you would have discussed if we would have had a Jewish literary festival. And that topic was blending the real and the imagined and how it affects the final project product. Um, and as we've, we've mentioned, you are very into your facts and your research, but you do like your fiction in that you can blur the lines slightly and use that to your advantage where where fiction comes into play. So after the break, when we have our break, we are going to discuss this about blending fact and fiction and the real and the imagined and how it does affect the final project and how you can bend the facts. Because, you know, if... If we wanted to read the facts, we would read a newspaper. Well, not that newspapers are all about the facts. We're never sure. Um, but how in fiction you get to obviously use facts, but then you can blur the lines and use a bit of license to suit you. And we'll chat about that after this break. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. We're back, and I'm chatting to my guest, Nahama Brody. We have been chatting about her current book, Three Bodies, and we've also touched on the previous book, Knucklebone. Nahama, um, obviously we weren't able to attend the Jewish Literary Festival, which got cancelled at the last minute. Yeah. But you were meant to be doing a session there, and the topic of that session was crime fiction, blending the real and the imagined, and how it affects the final product. And as we've mentioned, you are a fact checker and you do enjoy research. You you do a lot of research. How does blending the real and the imagined work for you? And I know that you've said you've written a lot of books, but only two fiction books. Yeah. You can use those facts to your advantage and you can, in fiction, blur those facts to suit your needs because, I mean, people read fiction because they want to escape reality. How does this work for you? From my perspective, I don't blur the facts or bend the facts to make the fiction. I bend the fiction to meet the facts. Uh And... I think that this also depends on your view of magic or traditional belief. So if you believe that those things are possible, then they become part of, I suppose, your not quite factual because you can't prove beliefs, but they become part of the accepted issues that you can incorporate. And what I try and aim with this kind of fiction is a degree of what I call plausibility, where I don't always obviously use real facts because it wouldn't be ethical or appropriate in many circumstances to take somebody else's actual case and simply, you know, uh, use it as my own. But I take pieces of information from other crimes, from 
uh, other research, and I use them to build up a um, a golem, you know, a, a sort of a, yes. a version of a crime story using real pieces of information. And I mean, this it's a terrible thing. Mandy Weiner and I always joke, but not really joke, that truth is so much stranger than fiction. Uh, uh, it, it definitely is, uh, without a doubt. And the things that I can find. Oh, in the annals of actual crime reporting will always far exceed what I'm even willing to put into my book because there are levels of kind of absolute violence and brutality against people that are sometimes incredibly hard to oh, to understand. I don't understand it still, and I've been researching this for a really long time. I still do not understand some of these things. Um, and But so I take real pieces of information just like I take real places. So I'll take a real place, a Okay, in this case, I, I take a, a made-up version of a golf estate at the heart of beer sport because I think I'd be sued if I used a, used a real one. Yes, as a from and, 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 and let people just imagine yes. whichever place they want to imagine. But it's based in reality, you know, so it's yes. based in knowing the space. Or I'll take a real place and I will introduce an imagined version of events that happened there. Or I'll take little pieces of actual crimes and little pieces of actual justice processes, whether it's you know, Madeleine Fullard going and digging up bodies or finding bodies that have been hidden for years or events that took place at the TRC, um, all of those things. So I include all of these facts. And for me, what that does is it builds up a fictional landscape that is almost the same as reality. So it's it's not quite a parallel universe, but it's so believable in one aspect um, because it includes all of this data. And I try not to go completely overboard. So, you know, if I'm writing about weapons, what I'm making sure of is, is it plausible that a weapon would be used in this way or would have this kind of a distance? But I'm not telling you the, the gauge of the millimeters of the shells and the, unless it's relevant to something forensic. So I'm not trying to become a forensic uh, document. But again, it's just to achieve that degree of plausibility so that it feels real to somebody reading it. And, and that extends to the action scenes, which for me are always the most fun to write. Um, I do martial arts, although uh, I've said this, I think, quite recently before, is I'm, I'm a bit slack with training at the moment with uh, the lockdown and not being able to go to the dojo. So um, I'm a little bit out of practice. But I, I have been doing karate for many years. I also used to box and have done several other uh, martial art things, including kendo, which is Japanese sword fighting. Can I, can I just ask you about your martial arts? Did you take that up just out of interest and out of just enjoyment, or did you take that up out of self-preservation, out of protection, out of self-defense, anything um, like I, that? I did karate from the time I was a child. So I w- have been doing karate essentially since I was eight, not consistently. I did take a long break between my teenage years and then I went back to the dojo as an adult and even then that was out of a sense of it's very much part of who I am um, I think that all all women should actually learn some kind of a martial art um, for uh, awareness bodily awareness and self-defense which is I think a natural yes. unfortunate part of being a woman um, yes I agree but it's not only about being able to to fight it's about being able to understand how your body works and how fights work so, you know, um, these, they kind of, it's almost like understanding the physics or the mechanics of, of an action scene. And I've enjoyed studying those things. Not so much. I mean, I did used to fight as a boxer. I don't enjoy fighting quite so much anymore. I think that's also a symptom of age. Um, but is, 
when I write action scenes, I visualize them very vividly and try and imagine what is plausible. How would, a, you know, would somebody be able to move from here to there? How would their body move? How would a weapon move with them? What would they have access to? What body part would they use to block or defend or whatever? And, and so I like picturing those kind of things in my head. And it's quite exciting because I don't always know how things are going to turn out. Um, so it's a little bit like a choose your own adventure for me too when I'm writing the action <laughs> scenes. Um, which gives them quite a lot of pace. And, you know, there's a, there's a couple of big action scenes in the middle of the book and at the end of the book here. Yes, where, there are. Um, you know, you have to kind of bring in lots of kind of of your own experiences physically to try and test out what are the limits of, of where this could go. So th- there again, even the action scenes, you know, you can tell if somebody writes about something that they don't physically understand how it works. You, you can feel that. You can, it's a bit like somebody giving you a recipe when they don't know how to cook, right? Yes. I have to say your action scenes are, especially the one in the middle of the book, it is so seamless. And I, I read that and I thought, oh my gosh, it was, it was so real. And my feeling was, have you experienced that? Like it was, it's frightening. It is very frightening. And unfortunately we have seen similar things, but yours was so detailed and it was, as I say, seamless. The way you had, had created that and put that together, I, I have to commend you on that. That was just, it's outstanding. That is outstanding writing. Well, thankfully at this stage, um, I have not had an actual experience of something like that. So that is, that came from watching hours of video footage and reading reports and, um, like I said, Annalisa's book and trying to understand how these types of heists do take place. Um, you know, it's difficult for me. Sometimes you have to use your imagination because, please God, you haven't been in such a terrible crime situation. And, um, but you have to imagine how these things might take place. But sometimes, but it just can be to, have ta- to have taken all that research that you have watched and read about and to have watched those hours of footage and to have yeah. condensed that into the scene that you created. Just well done for that because it's, it's, it's really outstanding writing, as Thank I said. You. And as, and Nakama has messaged me as she's talking to me to say <laughs> that Knucklebone is 77 Rand. That is an absolute bargain. Oh, sorry, the 77 um, Rand is on Kobo. I forgot to on put that. On Kobo and yeah. $5.99 on Kindle. Yeah. She doesn't know it in Rand. She has a US account and I can't help you because I have a UK account. So I probably couldn't help you either. So, but 77 Rand on Kobo is an absolute bargain if you have an e-reader, if you have a Kobo e-reader. Um, I do have a Kindle and I'm being ridiculous at the moment in that I'm going through a stage where I love physical books. I don't so know whether you, that's locked down. I don't know what that love, is. If you love physical books, there's definitely, I know that, um, some of the smaller bookstores, I know that Love Books in Melville had stock of Knucklebone and Three Bodies. And if you bought both, you got Knucklebone, I think, for a 100 Rand. I don't know if they still got stock because that was a, a special offer when we started. But if somebody is looking for a physical copy of Knucklebone, um, I am, I have, in fact, a, a box of books that arrived with me yesterday. I'm very happy to sell personally copies to only to your listeners. They have to, they have to like give your name and say people of the book as the password. Um, if oh, anybody brilliant. wants, they're welcome to, to contact me. If they can't find it in, uh, in exclusives or in one of the small bookstores, they are welcome to contact me if they want a copy of Knucklebone. And, um, 
Yeah. Okay. And I'm going to put all that information on the People of the Book Facebook page after the show. So you will be able to contact me and I will pass on details to Nahama and you will be able to get a copy of the book if you want it. Yes. And we can organize that. So um, we were chatting about, sorry, we got way sidetracked there, side sorry. So, back three bodies. Yes, we were talking, we're talking about, about the research and, yes, the, cash and uh, transit house. <laughs> and so, so, anyway, so with three bodies, I mean, so many different crimes come into play. So the cash and transit heists are the big, you know, they're the money shots. They're, they're the big, like, exploding stuff ones. Um, but there are also several other crimes, and some of them are historical or legacy crimes that are threaded throughout the book. And the one is the treatment of sex workers. One of them is the treatment of refugees and migrants who come from other African countries into South Africa. There's also, as I said, a strong narrative about apartheid-era crimes that were hidden or brushed under the rug um, and and which come out um, into into the story. Just hold on a second. Sorry, my son just walked in with his lesson on his uh, device. Oh, just needed to. May I ask him? All young. All and, um, and so to bring in, you know, and people say uh, when you write crime in South Africa, you don't ever write just about one crime because crime Absolutely. doesn't, it doesn't exist in and it doesn't come from a vacuum. It comes from um, historical context. You know, South Africa has a very specific crime profile, the way crimes happen here, the extent of violence that's used in certain types of crime is a very South African I'm going to have to interrupt you because we need to go to a break and then we are going to be back with a wrap up. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. It is great to be back and we have been having a fascinating conversation um, with my guest Nahama Brody about her book, Three Bodies, and we've been chatting about cash and transit heists, crime in South Africa, and writing crime in South Africa. Nahama, just to wrap up, tell me briefly, if you can, if you were stuck on a desert island, well, I don't know if this desert island question is relevant anymore. If you were stuck in your home during a pandemic and you only had five books with you, (laughs) which five books would you want those to be? Um... That's such a hard question. And to be honest, I have to admit, I have read almost nothing during the lockdown. I found it really hard. Um, so many people have said this. So many people have expressed the same feeling. They I, just I haven't really, been able to read. I was, at the start of lockdown, I was like, okay, I can totally do this. I have so many books. I love books. I love reading. I'm just going to read my heart's content. And I just couldn't. My brain wasn't welcoming kind of books, although it's slowly starting to get back to that now. Um, so I have a trick, a kind of one good answer to that is for my 21st birthday, my best friend gave me one of those giant weird compendiums that has um, a full dictionary, all of the works of William Shakespeare, including his sonnets. Oh, and wow. And it has like a biological dictionary also. It's quite old, but it's giant. It's like the size of, of, it's, it's probably, I mean, I don't know, it must weigh like five kilos or six kilos. It's a huge book. So I would take that. I would take that because that's cheating because it's like 17 books in one, but I would absolutely take that. Um, uh, my favorite book, which I often reread is, in fact, two favorites that I reread frequently are Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and Frank Herbert's science fiction book Dune. Which I, I have loved June. 
So I, I reread those constantly and have done since I was a teenager. So I'd probably chuck those in just, you know, for, for kind of favoritism. Seeing as I'm a practical person, though, I would probably make the rest of my books like uh, how to make a fire on a desert island kind of book. So I would include probably a survival guide <laughs> because, <laughs> I, you know, I really like knowing how to do things. And this is the problem with being fact-based is that I tend to want to know the answer to things. So I would... I would need something like that, but, but kind of a, quite a, quite a high level one, not a where's Wally or a, not, not a survival, not an island guide for dummies. I would, I would want a very intensive one that would require lots of reasoning. And then I guess what I would want is, you know, um, a huge amount of blank paper and a whole bunch of pens because then I would do the last thing, which was I would write my own. And that's, that's in a brilliant. sense what many of us do as writers is we write books because we want to create a story that we wish existed. That and is amazing. I think that's one of the best answers I've ever heard, really. <laughs> well done for that. Thank you. Outstanding. Nakama, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. And I hope you, my listener, has enjoyed it as much as I have. Nakama, I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been great fun. And I hope that you stay warm. Yes, you do. Everybody, thank you so much, and a good Shabbos and a good weekend to everybody. And let's also remember the other people who are cold out there. So, any blankets and clothes and stuff to be given. Absolutely, thank you so much for reminding everyone of that. And to you out there, stay warm, stay safe, and stay reading.